Hey everyone, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is episode 109, and this is Brian talking to you here with Dan. Hey Brian, happy holidays. Happy holidays, Dan. How was your Christmas? I had an excellent Christmas. Spent a lot of time with my family. Um, went to some holiday parties, mostly organized by family. So uh, my my daughters got a visit from Santa, and they got some cool stuff. So it was a it was a really nice Christmas. What about you, Brian? Good. Yeah, mine was good too. Pretty low key. Got a lot of snack food. I'm eating a lot of cookies. Love some good Christmas cookies. And of course, watching the yearly slate of Christmas films. I watched Ernest Saves Christmas last night. Gonna have to put that in our rotation at some point. Definitely, yeah. I've heard you mention that one. And now we are getting ready for New Year's at the end of the week. And so, listeners, what I have cobbled together is an hors d'oeuvre platter, if you will. A sampler plate that the waiter is walking around the party and we're just going to grab some odds and ends off of it as he passes by. So I've brought two short subjects to consider and Dan has also come up with two short things that we're going to cover. And we're just going to kind of rap about our thoughts on each, uh, hit them with some ratings, and then I wanted to talk a little bit about our resolutions for the year ahead. And then, listeners, we are going to rate our year, our 2022, how it went for us. Sound like a plan, Dan? I'm excited, yeah. Let's do it. Great. So, Dan, what are you doing New Year's Eve? What does a typical Dan New Year's look like? This is something that has transformed a lot in the past decade of my life, obviously. I mean, decade's a long time, I guess, but... Certainly since I had kids, it's changed quite a bit. So I used to, you know, stay up till midnight every year and occasionally went out to parties, uh, usually just hung around home and popped champagne. And one year we had some people over. I can't remember whether or not you made it that year, but that year I was on a quest to play 365 board games throughout the year. And I was 12 short on New Year's Eve. I think this was 2015. And I had a few people over and we played 12 board games before midnight and counted down to midnight. So that was a fun year. Just done a lot of different things through the years. But then obviously I had kids in 2017. My, my first daughter was born. And, you know, now I can't really just go out on the town. And uh, even staying up late is a risky proposition, staying up till midnight, because that just means that I'll be sleep deprived the next day. So what we've been doing since my now five year old was born is we do Hogwarts New Year's. So we count down to New Year's at 7 p.m. and they go to bed right after 7 p.m. So I don't know. We haven't talked about what we're doing this year. It'll probably just be that hanging out around the house. And then since they've been born, some years I've stayed up till midnight and some years I haven't stayed up till midnight. So it remains to be seen what we'll do this year. But what about you, Brian? What, what does a Brian New Year's Eve look like? 
Well, I guess in some ways it's more exciting than that and in other ways less. But mine have historically been pretty low-key. I've gone to a party once or twice over the years, but usually it's just staying home, watching the Twilight Zone marathon, and then, especially the last few years, tossing on this first special that we're going to be discussing here tonight, and uh, over the course of the evening, drinking a bottle of, like, $6 Andre champagne. Good stuff. Yeah. Had my fair share of Andre through the years. Especially New Year's Eve. So, what makes it Hogwarts New Year's? It's just the time zone in England. Oh. It happens to be a very convenient time. Okay, that makes sense. It would be New Year's at Hogwarts. Five hours difference. Right. Oh, and also we have a regular listener now who's from the UK. So apologies for every terrible thing that I at least have said about. <laughs> I don't know if Dan shares that, but Americans are anything but worldly. I stand behind the Declaration of Independence. No regrets on that one. Anyhow, the first film that we're going to talk about is the Sesame Street New Year's Eve special from 1993. So ringing in 1994. Listeners, you may remember that two weeks ago, the last time I was the host, we talked about Elmo Saves Christmas and Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. So I promise after this, we'll we'll break away from Sesame Street for a while. <laughs> We're not going to just be the sesame pod, but I think this one is worth discussion. Yes, I agree. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a fun one. The title of this special is Sesame Street Stays Up Late, although once it came out on home video, it was retitled Sesame Street Celebrates Around the World. So this is a completely dedicated New Year's Eve special, which are not super common, uh, definitely you see a lot more Christmas specials and Halloween specials and just about any other holiday before you get to a dedicated New Year's one. And that's why I like this one so much. Also, it has the gimmick that they check in with international co-productions of Sesame Street all over the globe, which is kind of nifty. Something that you may not know about if you're not tuned in to, say, the Muppet Wiki. <laughs> I take it from that that you are tuned into the Muppet Wiki. Yeah, sharp on my Muppets, as we've said in the past. <laughs> and actually, I learned more in the research for this week than I knew previously. So a lot of this special takes place on a set piece called Around the Corner. This was an expansion to the Sesame Street set that was added in 1993, so right around the era that I became conscious. And it was apparently discontinued in 1998. This was allegedly because the, like, sociologist researchers behind the Sesame Street curriculum determined that kids, quote, couldn't keep track of all these people and puppets, making the shows visually exciting and entertaining for adults, but confusing for kids. End quote. I don't know who these kids they're talking to are. I was never confused. I don't think it's difficult to comprehend there is another street next to this street, but I guess that's what they decided. It's interesting. I never, I understand that Sesame Street is a street. 
but there's like so many skits and just characters and gimmicks that in my head, the space of Sesame Street itself is not as iconic and central to the show as the characters are. It's not like Cheers. You can't imagine Cheers anywhere but in the Cheers bar. You know, that's <laughs> that's what Cheers is. But Sesame Street, despite having it in the title, like, I don't know, it didn't even occur to me that this wasn't the Sesame Street as I was watching. Right. It never phased me as a kid, but little did I know this was like a only 90s kids remember thing. Because, yeah, like the main Sesame Street block, I guess, is where um, Big Bird's Nest is and Bert and Ernie's apartment. But what Around the Corner has is a thrift shop called Finders Keepers, where a character named Ruthie works, played by Ruth Buzzy, as well as the Furry Arms Hotel, where there's like a rabbit bellhop who works, and there's this one family of hotel residents that you see a lot. Also over here is the home of Hoots the Owl, who plays the saxophone. Okay. He has a pretty banging cover of Put Down the Ducky that he collaborated on with Ernie. Anyhow, this entire special pretty much takes place around the corner. And a sizable bit of Elmo Saves Christmas from 1996 did as well. So we saw, for instance, this hotel in Elmo Saves Christmas. Gotcha. Yeah. Which, as you mentioned, we covered in depth in our recent episode. Right. But this is New Year's Eve on Sesame Street. And kind of like in Christmas Eve on Sesame Street, there are these several subplots that are unfolding that we check in with multiple times uh, because it does have kind of that variety show flavor of a typical Sesame Street episode. A little bit. It's not quite as narrative-driven as Elmo Saves Christmas. Broadly, the kids are having a New Year's Eve party where they're being like supervised by the cool young adults Gina and Savion Glover, while the older like parent-type adults are off having their adult-exclusive festivities. And then against this backdrop we have kind of the star of the show, Telly Monster, Dan. You mentioned an affinity for Telly last time. Yeah, Telly was, I think, my favorite when I was a kid. I, I remember at least watching a lot of Telly and and uh, enjoying those segments when I was a kid. But like I said, I couldn't have told you anything about who Telly was except what he looked like. Although this jived a little bit more with what his personality was in this. I was like, okay, I get the purpose of Telly as a character. Right. So Telly's quirk is that he's kind of paranoid. He doesn't roll with the punch as well. So he gets antagonized at the start of this special by Oscar, much like Big Bird in Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. Because here Oscar says that when the new year comes, the old year goes away. They throw away the calendars because they don't need them anymore. So basically there's... I guess going to be some huge sea change in the new year and everything about the old year is going to be obliterated. It's kind of an apocalyptic vision of new years. Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes you think a little bit. Right. But ultimately I think you come down on the determination that time is more or less arbitrary. I guess the seasons aren't completely arbitrary. So the, the year is tied to something, but 
that that's really it is that the seasons are starting over again yeah so you're right like it could be you know why not the middle of summer why why not fall why january 1st why is that january 1st you know and it's almost like a expansion of the version of what happens in a day like my daughter has been fascinated with why is midnight when we say it's a new day and why is that 12 and it's like i don't know i don't have an answer for that that's just what we do it's like you could do 6 a.m as the start of the new day that might make more sense i don't know but midnight is what we do that is interesting. Now I'm going to be thinking about that. A couple other bits that we return to in this special. We've got Oscar talking on the phone. He's doing, like, what do you even call this? It's like a party line. One of those calls that you would see in TV episodes back when people talked on landline phones where you could be connected to like multiple people all on the same line. I've never actually done this before, Dan. You're a little older than me. Did you ever do a phone call like this where there's multiple people on the call? No, never done that. There's once or twice where we managed to get three people on the call at once, but it was always a hassle. It was like you had to hit a button at a certain time and then the other people had to wait and then you had to call the other person and they had to hit a button at a certain time. Probably helps if you have an operator like they have here. Yeah, so they've got a switchboard operator helping them out because the Grouches, I guess, each year have like a family reunion by phone on New Year's and they're all going to get together and share this big message that they have. And so every time we check in with them, new Grouch family members are joining the call and kind of... Brady Bunch picture-in-picture style and the switchboard operator is played by guest star Lily Tomlin who one year later on PBS would be playing Ms. Frizzle and we love Magic School Bus at least in our house and I recall you being a fan too Brian definitely yeah it's a good show I've got the DVDs and she's done a lot more beyond that I mean she's got an Academy Award nomination she's a great actress and you know the count he loves to count, so he's in charge of counting down the seconds until we get to, you know, the 10 when everybody joins in. And the other kind of regular bit that we're checking in with is Snuffy taking a nap. And is he going to wake up <laughs> to be able to ring in the new year in time? Which sounds like something that you worry less about, Dan, the last few years. No, yeah. I don't feel like I'm a failure if I've fallen asleep before the, the 12 o'clock the way that I might have a few years ago. Oh, uh, th that's the other thing. You know, I said in some ways less exciting, some ways more exciting, my own New Year's traditions. I've stayed up for New Year's probably every year since I was like five wow. was about when they started letting me do it. But also, like nowadays, there's rarely a day that I go to bed before midnight, so it phases me less. I tend to be up late and then, you know, not much later than that typically, but that's like about when I tend to be tuning, turning in. I'm starting to wind down at about 10 and I am pleased if I am lying down to fall asleep before 11. Yeah, that's that's pretty normal. That's probably healthy. We'll be talking about resolutions, as I said, by the end here. Okay. But then what really sets this special apart is we see this news broadcast that I guess people who are hanging out at like Hooper's store are watching. 
it's a broadcast of the Monster News Network. They've got, like, bugs in the corner of the screen with a logo similar to CNN, but this is MNN. And Elmo is the news anchor, and he is joined by reporters from the various international branches of Sesame Street, the co-productions that are put on in these various countries. And he's asking each one, what do people in your country do to ring in the new year? And most of these snippets that we see are actual international Sesame Street casts. Not across the board, but most of them. Uh, the ones that don't have like dedicated Sesame Street productions are just hosted by like kind of racist Elmo clones. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Like we just have Mexican Elmo and Japanese Elmo instead of original characters. But it is cool to see we first stop in Mexico, I guess, where it's, yeah, it's Cousin Pepe, just Elmo with a poncho and sombrero and like a big bandito mustache. Yeah. <laughs> so not the most promising start, maybe, but we do learn that they like break pinatas. But then we go to Portugal, where we are introduced to the cast of Rua Sesamo, which was the Portuguese Sesame Street production from 1989 to 1994. So just kind of a flash in the pan and gone pretty soon after this special. But the, the host is like a, a cat. Yeah, this pink cat. I just thought it was really interesting that Sesame Streets in different countries had different unique puppets. I mean... I guess I hadn't really thought too much about it. I guess the other thing you could do is either a straight dub or just like make episodes with the same characters, but in that language, you know, like, I don't know why you needed new characters, but it does make each one really distinct, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And I believe in some countries, they do both of those things you mentioned, like a lot, just dub the American episodes. Mm, okay. There could be some that, you know, reuse certain segments and have original segments of their own. Actually, I recommend listeners that you check out the international co-production of Sesame Street article on just regular Wikipedia is pretty good. And it's got the whole history of like when they tried these in the different countries and a little bit about what's distinct. But this makes for a great just variety introduction to them. And the thing I guess they do in Portugal is that they each have a bundle of grapes and for each grape they eat, they make a wish. So, you know, not too different from a resolution, but it's like, what are you hopeful for in the new year? Right. It, it didn't really occur to me that resolutions was an American thing. That comes up, though, that that's like the what Americans do for New Year's. I mean, I guess that's like you have different variations on that. Like you said, the wish is one. Right. And then in Japan, where, again, it's just a Japanese Elmo, we have the kids exchanging cards with their friends and they run around and they fly kites and they play badminton. I looked it up. Apparently, Japan just aired American Sesame Street episodes dubbed, and they did try a local production later in the 2000s. 
but that proved less popular and was ultimately discontinued. Mexico, according to Wikipedia, had its own Sesame Street called Plaza Sesamo. Unclear why it's not featured. Huh, interesting. I'm, I'm really not sure. But then my favorite stop is in Israel, where we meet the cast of Rechav Sumsum. Apparently this was produced from 1983 and continues to be produced, but it sounds like it's kind of been a spotty production, like in fits and starts. Uh, but the main Muppets that we see here are Oofnik the Grouch. That's great. Oscar's Israeli cousin. And Kippy the Hedgehog, who's kind of the big bird, kind of the larger than life character. Mm -hmm. Who I didn't think looked very Muppety. It's like doesn't have the same expressive eyes. It's more like yeah. a, it looks like a stuffed animal or something. Yeah, a little more like an Emmett Otter character or something. I have a... I don't think I've ever said this either to you, Brian, and certainly not on the air. <laughs> but just as we get into the Israel chapter, what are you about to say, Dan? Yeah. So <laughs> I, uh, I um, don't worry. I'm not about to go full Kanye. <laughs> so I've had a bunch of Jewish friends throughout my life, and I've always like really admired and appreciated the sense of community and history that Jewish people have at least the ones that, you know, that I've known and all, all my Jewish friends. And I know I'm not going to like cast too broad a net. Everyone's different, but just like this community, like had just really healthy, well-adjusted driven dynamic without being too like high pressure. And because I had really all these great experiences with friends of that religion, part of me, I always wished that I had been born into a Jewish family which is like a weird thing to say. I don't know. I feel weird saying it, but... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Just the, the strong sense of, of community and values and history. I always thought it was really cool. And I've always had a lot of friends who are Jewish. Mm -hmm. Some of the traditions that we see here are playing the shofar. I've always wanted to go to a shofar concert as a critic so that I could review it with the headline, Shofar Show Good. <laughs> Which I think could also be like a like a purred happily line. But uh, anyhow, they do mention that Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, is celebrated in the fall, like you said. So really, you could start the calendar over again at any point. Yeah. Because it's just a big circle. But they're like, here's what we did three months ago. And they've got a similar thing where like you eat honey and apples to hopefully have a sweet New Year which sets off Oofnik because he hates sweetness. The best part of this, and I think the best part of the special, is suddenly Kippy breaks into this song that up until this week I thought was written for this special. But it's called Bashana Haba'a. And it might not quite be Hava Nagila, but it cranks in much the same way. <laughs> uh, apparently this is an Israeli folk song that dates back at least from the seventies. So not super old for a folk song, but not originating here on Sesame street in 1993, but it goes. And suddenly there's like a bunch of helicopter footage like drone shots pre-drones just flying over Israel. Like, I don't know. I don't know who got these shots. 
but the production value just suddenly jumps. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I didn't. I wasn't really thinking about it, but it's like you get these aerial shots of temples and stuff. It's pretty cool. A few more stops we get. We see Germany. This is Sesamstrasse, which apparently has been on the air since 1973. It was one of the very first and longest lasting international co-productions. And according to this, in Germany, they do something very much like trick-or-treating or like old school Christmas caroling. You know, if you pay attention to the lyrics of We Wish You a Merry Christmas, it's like a go from house to house and demand that they give you stuff song. Have you ever been legitimately Christmas caroling, Brian? I think I did once. But what about you, Dan? I don't think so, actually. I mean, I might have done like a staged one with like a school choir or something like that or a church choir, but never just like knocking on doors. I vaguely remember that like with church youth group when I was in middle school, I think we did actually walk around the neighborhood, uh, but I think only once. I think it might be more of a British thing. It's come up in multiple British media that I've watched. So bring us some figgy pudding. That's not a request, you know, it's a command. <laughs> Imperative. Yeah. Also in the Wassel song, they say... We are not daily beggars who beg from door to door, but we are neighbors' children whom you have seen before. Hmm. So th this is kind of a tradition that's fallen by the wayside in the English-speaking world, I feel. But definitely some connective DNA. We, we kind of shifted it to Halloween, the begging from door to door. Oh, I like that insight. Yeah. Yeah, we, we took that concept and we moved it to when it was we were dressing up as monsters. Yeah. I don't know what that says about America. Whenever I hear Good King Wenceslas, I think of Caroline. Mm-hmm. That one's got some good lyrics. I would have to pull them up, but... Where the snow lay dinted. What does that mean, dinted? I think it's uh, where the, the footprints were. Okay. Heat was in the very sod. Where the snow lay dinted, I, I think. It's like, we gotta revisit that one. We'll wait till next okay. Christmas. We'll do a deep dive on King Wenceslas. And maybe we can throw in In the Bleak Midwinter and Patapan and all those kinds of Christmas songs that you hear when you go to Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, but for now, a couple more International Sesame Street visits. We see the cast of Norwegian Sesame Street, Sesam Stasjan, which aired only from 1991 to 1999. So this is like the discovery zone of Sesame Street. <laughs> And what's kind of cool about seeing Norway in December 1993 is that they were just about to host the Lillehammer Winter Olympics in February 1994. So, of course, they're talking about winter sports like skiing. You mentioned it recently, but it is interesting how it's always random cities that get the Winter Olympics. I mean, I guess there's fewer cities to pick from. But it just seems like these cities that you you almost never hear about in headline news, as opposed to the Summer Olympics, which is like Tokyo and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. But Yeah, it's places like Torino and Nagano. Yeah. But they also like take a sleigh ride through this little miniature town that's kind of cool. I wonder, Dan, have you done much skiing? I've never been skiing. Oh, man. I got to take you skiing. 
Do you like skiing? That's like the one athletic activity I'm pretty into. I wouldn't say I'm great at it by any means, but I've gotten where I'm comfortable with it. And I think it's a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah, I recommend it. My my brother would always want to do snowboarding, and he's finally gotten a little little better at that. But it just seems a lot harder to to snowboard. Yeah, I can see that. The skis, you got like a wider base. Right. You have two that you can have on the ground. Yeah. I don't know why. I think part of it is that it was expensive and I am the oldest of six. And so anything that's a little expensive for normal families was really expensive for us. So we didn't really do that much vacationing. Mm -hmm. And then I just never, you know, my my parents didn't really do it. So they it was never important for them to go out skiing. So I don't know. I just I never did it. And I know sometimes people would go on like school trips and stuff, but I was never a part of one of those. Those are all good points. I try to do it like every other year. So it's not a super regular thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going out to like Aspen or anything, but I I like it. It's a refreshing activity to do every once in a while. Some people who live in cold weather areas build their lives around skiing to some extent. It's like they do it every weekend, you know, and they, they live in those areas because it's highly accessible to skiing. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely picture that. It's like if you live in Florida and you have the annual Disney Pass or whatever, it, it becomes cost-effective at a certain point. Right. But as we wind closer and closer to midnight, Telly has been running and hiding and trying various schemes to put off the arrival of the new year. Like, oh, if we don't throw a party, then the new year can't come. You know, it's it's kind of like Chanticleer the rooster thinking. If if the rooster doesn't crow, then the sun can't come up. I, at first, I wasn't sold on the telly story, but I liked it as it came around. And it started to seem more like, I don't know, more of an existential crisis than just a little gag. It's like he's thinking about the passage of time, not uh, at least under the surface, you know. And I was like, okay. There is some something kind of dark and thoughtful here. And this is the moment where it really clicked for me, where he's like trying to hide li- physically and literally from the new year, when obviously that's a silly thing, but it's like literalizing this this fear of the passage of time and, and losing our grip on time. Yeah. You know that I love when they can get some darkness in the Sesame Street specials. Right. And finally, though, Gina finds him, like you said, literally hiding in the thrift shop. And she reassures him that basically, for all intents and purposes, the things that exist at 1159 are going to continue existing at 1201. And then the, the ball drops and everybody rings in the new year together. Even the adults come back from around around the corner, wherever they've been for the the big moment and then everybody sings a song called faces that i love and that's that's got some good lyrics in it this is my wish having you here day after day year after year holding my hand keeping me strong filling the world with our song good climax yeah and i'm a sucker for scenes of 
everybody like arm in arm singing songs together. I got the tingles watching it, even though I, I I wasn't necessarily swept away by the song itself, but just the gesture and the the spirit of it, I really like. So that is the Sesame Street special from December 29th, 1993. I kind of like that aside from the Lillehammer Olympics, there's not too much to date it. Like, you don't see any signs that say that they're ringing in 1994. Right. They don't announce that. Although I will say, and this is that's a good segue back to my thought on the the racist Elmo. It seemed very 90s, early 90s, especially vision of diversity to some extent. Like, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I learned about the importance of diversity. And like the way we did this is we like dressed up as Indians and stuff. And I, I don't know. It's like the way that we would include these things. It's like we would read books that were still written and illustrated by white men, but like stories from different cultures. So like, I think we were starting to like come to grips with this idea that, Hey, part of being in a melting pot means we really do have to embrace these, these other people with different experiences and, and that theme really coming to the, the foreground, but like we hadn't quite nailed it. So like 1993 was two years before Pocahontas, which I, I don't know the last time you watched Pocahontas, but it's like super cringy in the way that it deals with these two different cultures interacting. I feel like we, we really have come a long way. And yeah, having stuff like Elmo be just like dress up as if he's Mexican as a way of honoring the Mexicans it seems kind of hilariously dated now. But it, it really did feel like early 90s in the way that like we learned about that when I was a kid in elementary school. Yeah, I think you're on to something. We should do a Pocahontas episode at some point. I do watch that one from time to time. You know, Ratcliffe actually got killed by the Powhatan. He got skinned alive and they cooked the pieces of him in front of him. So I feel like there's nuance to the story that is lost. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the version that we have does justice to just about anyone's story or like the depth and the undercurrents of what that story represented. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To me, the early 90s multiculturalism is best represented by Captain Planet. Oh, yeah. And the Planeteers where you've got one representative from each continent. Right. And, of course, also The Puzzle Place on PBS. Did you ever watch The Puzzle Place? No. Okay, well, we might have to go deeper on that at some point. But it was like a hangout spot, and you got one puppet of every race. It's very, like, Muppety-type puppets. But you've got, like, yeah, one black, one Native American, one Hispanic. Right. One white, one Jew. Complete collection. Yeah, the whole set. <laughs> but with that, I want to move on to our second offering of the evening, which is a short film called Dinner for One. Did you have any familiarity with this one, Dan? Never had heard of it. Was not familiar with it. Okay, I didn't expect that you would, because this is one I came across in German class, which I think was in 10th grade, German 3 when uh, the class was assigned to break up into pairs 
and each pair was assigned to report on some holiday that is celebrated in Germany, and I think that fell, like, during the school year at some point. And then when that time rolled around, this pair would have to report on that holiday to the class and, like, share traditions that were part of the holiday. So my partner was my friend Mohit, who I had class with starting in elementary all up through high school. Like, in eighth grade, I think we had identical schedules, so just every class every day together. And the holiday that we got assigned was New Year's, also called Silvestertag in Germany. So St. Sylvester's Day is December 31st. And some traditions that they do in Germany on Silvestertag is they do this form of fortune-telling where they melt lead into cold water and then look at the shape that it cools into. So it's like, you know, tea leaves in Harry Potter. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> probably more toxic. <laughs> I don't think you want to be burning lead. Yeah, probably not. More, more recently, they may have shifted to something that is, you know, not going to shorten your lifespan as much. Right. <laughs> but the other thing that they do is they watch this short film which is in English. And I'm still not entirely clear on what led to this, but this short originated as a play in, like, the 30s in England. It was originally written by a guy named Laurie Wiley, which is a pen name, short for Lawrence Metzenberg. And I guess at some point by the 50s, the rights passed to a British comedian named Freddie Frinton, who would do this sketch as part of his act. And somewhere along the way, a German entertainer saw him performing this show and said, hey, you should come on TV in Germany and we'll record you doing this sketch. And that led to this 1963 recording by West German television of Freddie Frinton performing the act. So both this short from 1963 and the Sesame Street special from 1993 credit Norddeutscher Rundfunk in their credits, the German TV network. Huh. So they had a hand in both of these, 30 years apart. Wow. But uh, the premise of this short is that an old woman who is wealthy is throwing a big soiree, a dinner party, to ring in her 90th year. So it's, it's a birthday party. The alternate title is the 90th birthday. Not specifically New Year's related, but it has that theme of beginning a new year. Oh, interesting. I just assumed it was New Year's because of the context of this episode, but I guess there is nothing specifically New Year's-y about it. It could just as well be a birthday. Right, but it is part of these festivities in Central Europe. And the old woman has invited four of her dearest friends to the party, all men. Sir Toby, Admiral von Schneider, so I guess there is some, some German-ness. Also, Mr. Pomeroy and Mr. Winterbottom. There's a catch, though. 
somewhere along the way, all of these gentlemen have died. And so being 90 years old, she's long outlived all of her friends. So here she is sitting alone, dinner for one, as the title says. But the table is still set for all five. And it has fallen to Sophie's butler, James, to not only serve everyone the various courses of this meal, but he's also got to act out the parts of all these dear departed friends. And what it comes down to is that each course of this four-course meal is accompanied by an alcoholic beverage. And so James, being all the party guests, has to drink 16 drinks. <laughs> four courses for four guests. So comedy is derived from him growing drunker and drunker and also a few repeated gags because he keeps making this cycle around the table with his tray. Like he'll bring the food, he's, he pours the drink in each glass, and then he does like a little exchange with Miss Sophie as each guest and he's doing the different voices and just getting sloppier and sloppier as he goes. So we got this kind of slapstick, goofy, getting drunk and silly gag with this slight undercurrent because, you know, he's pretending to be dead people and they're like living out the same rituals that they had been for decades, except are barely even acknowledging that the dead people aren't there. So it's got this slightly bizarre tone to it. Right. A, a little tinge of morbidness. And each time before he makes his rounds, James asks Miss Sophie, the same procedure as last year, Miss Sophie? And she says, the same procedure as every year, James. So one wonders how long they've been doing this with this specific setup where James is all the parts and how aware of things Miss Sophie actually is. But then he goes off around the table again. There's like this tiger skin rug on the floor that he keeps tripping over the head. And like sometimes he manages to dodge it. And so it changes up the formula a little bit. And, like, as he gets drunker, his movements are looser. And so, like, when he trips, things go flying. And, like, cups start falling over as he pours into them. But then, finally, we've made it through all the courses. I, and I think it's a version of wine with everything. It's, like, sherry with the fish and white wine with the chicken and port with the dessert. So g getting wine drunk. Yeah. Do you like port, Ryan? I actually do like port. Do you have port thoughts? I really like port. It's one of the things I miss most since I have stopped drinking for the past several months. Yeah, it's very rich. It's very sweet. And they bring it to you in, at least when I've ordered it, like a little tiny glass. Yeah. And one thing that I did, it's a, a favorite boozing memory of sorts is when I went to a wedding in California, we went to a winery and they said, do you want a port boot shot? And I was like, I don't know what any of that is. What is a port boot shot? It's like a cow train. <laughs> kind of, yeah. What do those words mean in that sequence? Port boot. Port boot shot. <laughs> 
so I said, all right, bring me a port boot shot. And so what it is, is a, uh, you get port. Okay. Like the wine poured in a chocolate boot. So it's a boot made of chocolate. And so the idea is you take the shot of the port, you drink it in a gulp, like a shot, and then you munch on the chocolate because port goes well with chocolate. So it's like, it's paired there, you know? Yeah, that sounds good. I don't, I don't know why it had to be boot shaped. I'm not sure what the, the connection was there. Well, again, I can't tell you why other than it's the thing they do. That's very much a tradition in Germany is drink out of the boot. And so they have mm, all okay. these glasses of various sizes in boot shapes. Who knows? Somewhere back in the distant past, they may have actually drank out of shoes like old Greg. But now it's it's boot shaped glasses and drinkware. And we've made it through these 16 beverages for James the Butler. And it's like a tumbler full every time. They're pretty big glasses. Yeah. And like there's one of the guests whose character is that he always asks James for a little bit extra in his glass. So he's sauced. <laughs> and he makes his way around the table and Miss Sophie says she's ready to retire for the evening. And again, they do the same procedure as last year. Well, the same procedure as every year, James. And I think we're supposed to understand that this whole thing has been a rigmarole to get James liquored up so that he'll perform sexual services for the old lady. Oh, interesting. So, like, he had to be drunk to be able to do it. Right. To be tricked into it or something. That's, well, yeah, just to be loosened up. Yeah. To be amenable. Yeah. I hadn't read it that way, but I think now that you say that, I think you're probably right. Because he turns to the camera when she says same procedure as every year, and he says, well, I'll do my very best. <laughs> we need to get you to do a British accent for a whole episode, Brian. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, sorry. I just blew my my apology earlier to England. But <laughs> yeah, and that's the end. And so that's what we stumbled across in 10th grade and showed to our class is Dinner for One from 1963. And yeah, apparently this is really caught on in Europe, on the continent. And like half of the German population watches this on New Year's Eve. It's spread to like Switzerland and the Netherlands and up into Scandinavia and even into like European adjacent places like Australia and South Africa. But not in England. Like, it's very little known in the UK and America as well. This is not something that we regularly include as part of our New Year's Eve programming. And we don't know why. We don't really have clarity on that. Not as far as I can tell. It just, it tickled somebody's funny bone, a German visitor, and, and they recorded it there where it's shown in English like no subtitles they just show it as is because a lot of the population speaks english already to some degree right and it does have in the full version that we watched like a little three minute introduction by a german mc who kind of explains what's going to happen he says she's long uberlaped era freunden she has long outlived her friends and yeah so, Dan, what did you think? I mean, we'll cycle back again when we rate, but... Yeah, 
I mean, it's very sticky in the sense that it's like broad being very silly. Oh, let's laugh at a pretend drunk guy stumbling around and, and accidentally drinking out of the flower vase instead of drinking out of his wine glass and, and things like that. But I think it it still works overall. I, I thought it, there's there's just something kind of fun and as you said, slightly morbid about the way that it kind of intersects with death and like our human stubbornness and dependency on habit, even when it's kind of stupid and ridiculous. And just this, I don't know, reflection on the fact that we people do these same things over and over again as a way that we process the passage of time. Right. I think that's going to be uh important thread throughout all of these things we talk about right yeah very much on brand for new year's thoughts and like still to this day i'll occasionally message one of the like two people in my german class that i still am in touch with and say same procedure as every year if there's any german listeners out there send us an email at the goods film podcast at gmail.com Tell us your experience with this special or find us on the Discord at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. And now, Dan, on to the media that you brought for our consideration. Yeah, so, Brian, I had you watch two different things. They were the first two New Year's related media that I thought of. Because uh, you're right, there's less... Because you're right, there are fewer specials and movies and stuff around New Year's than there are Christmas or Halloween, probably even less than Thanksgiving. I don't know. I'd have to do a comparison. But for whatever reason, not as much. And so these were the first two I thought of. So the first was an episode of the television show entitled The O.C. And the name of the episode is The Countdown. And this aired on December 17th, 2003. It was the last episode of The O.C. to air in 2003. And so I thought I would use this as a space to talk a little bit about The O.C. in general and then this specific episode. So I think we've done The O.C. a little bit dirty collectively. I'm a big fan of The O.C. I kind of discovered it uh, after it had been done airing, probably... I discovered it like around 2010 or so. And our friend Nate, who's appeared on the pod, was actually the one who pushed me to give it a shot because my reputation of it was just that it was a trashy teenage soap. But I, I think it's much better than that. It's it's so the story on the OC, it came at kind of a weird time. So it was post 9-11 and like, I don't know, America was very introspective and dealing with a lot of culture shift, but it was before like internet and geek culture had really taken off. And it was kind of like the last hurrah of these monoliths before everything was disrupted with Napster and streaming and stuff. And so it's kind of like the last of its breed. The The first season of the OC, it's an hour long teen drama is 27 episodes. They just don't do that anymore. Yeah. That blew my mind. Like nowadays, if it's an hour long drama, you're lucky if you get like eight episodes in a season. Right. I, I miss these days. Like this is what the 14th episode of the first season. And so I have never seen this show before. I knew very little about it going in. 
Uh, there is like a last time on the OC at the start, which clarified some things. But like what I could tell is that a lot had already happened, like big developments already by episode 14. Yeah. So some of that is explained by the backstory of the OC, which it's actually like a inspiring and, and cool story to some extent. So uh, the show was created by Josh Schwartz. So he was a grad student at USC studying either filmmaking or screenwriting or something. And in his spare time, he was just writing scripts and mailing them out to agents and producers. And he was 25 years old and he managed to get a meeting with these two producers, these two pretty powerful producers. One of them is named McGee, which I always thought was an interesting uh, name. He's the guy who directed Charlie's Angels and uh, he's done a few other things. And he's kind of like your stereotypical hotshot producer guy. Like if you ever see a producer parodied in a TV show or movie, they're parodying people like McGee. And Josh Schwartz is the opposite of that. He's like a real geeky, uh, like witty guy. So there's a character on the OC, Seth Cohen. He's one of the the leads. And Josh Schwartz basically wrote an idealized version of himself when he wrote Seth Cohen. And having never seen the show before, I could still tell that yeah. this was the executive producer insert character. Yeah. So basically, uh, the producers and Josh Schwartz like had this pilot script and they went to Fox and they're like, we think this is a good pilot script. We want to make it as a pilot. Remember, this is just a dude who goes to college. Like it could have been any of our friends, Brian. And Fox was like, um, yeah, this is a good script. We like this. All right. We're going to order a 27 episode season and Josh Schwartz, you're going to be the showrunner. And it was a little bit more to it than that, but just like this really rapid rise, he was the youngest showrunner in TV history when he was hired to do this. And he had no previous experience working any Hollywood or TV job. It's kind of like a dream fantasy come true for this guy. Whoa, that is pretty awesome. He basically wrote this as a combination of like a trashy teen soap, but also with kind of some of these other elements, he, you know, he did the uh, across the tracks stuff. It all takes place in the rich area of the OC, but the way the show opens in the pilot is Ryan is a kid from poor area, not too far from the OC. And he gets taken in by this rich family. And at, at first they try to reconnect him with his family, but he, his mom, who's a, drunk runs off and basically he ends up getting adopted by this rich family. So you have this really interesting brother dynamic because uh, Seth is an only child and now he's kind of forced to live with Ryan and Ryan, you know, he's from a totally different world. So you kind of have this combination of fish out of water, but then like Seth and Ryan become these really good friends and they're like very opposite dynamics. Like Ryan is very stoic and quiet and Seth is just always yammering, yammering, yammering. It reminded me of Drake and Josh, which I also don't have a comprehensive knowledge of, but in the sense that you've got like the hot, cool guy who's plugged in and then the dorkier, funny guy and yeah. their friend brothers, like they're not really brothers, but now they live together and they hang out. 
It's a really good dynamic. I I always like this kind of dynamic. I mean, I guess always the two that I can think of are this and Drake and Josh. There are probably others out there, but I actually, um, back in the day, I wrote some of my own scripts just for fun. I never even dreamed of selling them or anything like that. But the story I wrote was a half hour comedy format, heavily inspired by the OC with a pretty similar dynamic of like a kind of upper middle class family with uh, a poor relative moving in and two teen boys who become de facto brothers and best friends. But they also kind of have some tension between them, too. So um, I think it's cool. So Ryan is played by Ben McKenzie, who has gone on to be in. He starred in the Gotham show. I don't know if you ever watched that, Brian. No, but I have seen pictures of the penguins haircut. Interesting. That was kind of like a Batman prequel of all the people around Gotham City. And I think he played Gordon. I can't remember who he was, but something like that. So Adam Brody is Seth Cohen. I absolutely love this performance. I absolutely love the way the character is written. He is the comic relief, but he also gets his own dramatic arc. And one of the great things about this show, so you said a lot of stuff had happened. This show practically reinvented itself every three or four episodes in this first season. It's like you could watch four episodes later and the character dynamics would be totally different. There was just kind of a reckless abandon with it. And part of that was Josh Schwartz had never written a TV show, never worked in TV before. So he just kind of shot his shot. He had like all these ideas for stories. And he's like, we're going to do every single story that I can think of in this season. I don't even know if we're going to be renewed for a second season. So I've never actually seen the whole run of the OC in part because the first season is so fun. And then it kind of loses steam in the second season. Although the second season might have been its peak popularity and cultural zeitgeist. It was a big thing for a while of teen culture. There's a moment in the season two finale where Ryan's brother is back in the picture and he's fighting with Ryan and Marissa, who I'll, I'll get to in a minute, is one of the, the teen female leads. And she shoots Trey, who's Ryan's brother. Sorry for spoiling a two decade old show now. And it does this music cue of what you say, which you've probably heard before. It's like this weird digitized acapella song. Mm, what you say Ooh, that you really did well. I sent you a, a link to this, Brian. Did you watch it? I did. Yeah, this was new to me. Obviously, I've heard the song before. And then it was parodied on SNL because it's like a kind of ludicrous over the top moment. I mean, so much of the OC was ludicrous and over the top, but this in particular was. And in the parody, it's just a bunch of comedians shooting each other over and over again. And every time one of them shoots the other, the mm, what you say song comes on. And it's really funny. I I got a kick out of when the police find the scene at the end and there's a letter written to one of the characters who came in. It says, when you read this, I will already be dead. I think the way it will go down is, and then it describes everything that's happened, including, and then you will walk in and all of us will shoot you multiple times. Right. And then the two cops will come in and they will shoot each other. And the cops look at each other and start shooting each other over and over again, even though they have no reason to. It's pretty funny. Maybe I'll post that into Discord. But... I would probably put Seth Cohen in one of my top 10 favorite TV characters because he has so many funny lines and he also has like the ultimate 
wish fulfillment arc. Like it seemed at the beginning, like he was just going to be sort of the comic relief character, but then his kind of big romantic story over the series is he's had a long time crush on summer. Who's played by Rachel Bilson and they have a terrific chemistry and a great dynamic. And she's kind of like your stereotypical mean girl bitch, but she obviously gets more depth as the series goes along. And then we get this triangle where for a while it seems like he has two girlfriends and then he has none. And that's where this story picks up is like, he's kind of blowing his shot with both girls. Anyways, what happens in the episode is there's a couple of parallel plots. So Ryan, his series long romances with Marissa, who's played by Misha Barton. And at this point, They've already had like multiple fights. Are they together? Are they not together? And now it seems like they're together. But she says, I love you. And he won't say I love you. Something that's been on every sitcom you've ever seen. And in the meantime, she's hitting it off with this guy that she met at therapy, which is always a bad sign. Meeting when you're at therapy and you meet someone at therapy. And it's this guy named Oliver. And Oliver has gone on in the show's history as like the the you love to hate him villain. Yeah, the shithead. Exactly. Always over the top. And Brian, if you're at all intrigued, I I encourage you to watch to the end of his arc because he has the wildest send off that I've ever seen. (laughs) He he locks locks her in a room, starts taking these drugs and like has a gun and is like, you're going to be my girlfriend now. And uh, nobody believes Ryan that that he's crazy because there's sort of a, a triangle introduced here where Maybe Marissa has this connection to Oliver, even though things are starting to go well with Ryan. Now I'm picturing Oliver as like a snuffleupagus who only Ryan can see. (laughs) Yeah. I swear he was just here. But there's this show just was always fun, at least in this first season, about like having these over the top, but still like really just fun and grounded in the characters arcs and and stories and stuff and yeah i love the show and i love that it was made at a time before you really had streaming and normalized versions of serial storytelling so it is kind of it's a soap opera of course so you're gonna have hookups and breakups but there was just something ambitious about the way that it told stories that i think it's kind of harder to appreciate now or maybe it's easier to appreciate because they made they did over 27 episodes instead of eight episodes and still maintained a sense of fun and made by a guy who was just out of college and s- stole the show with no experience. So that is pretty cool. And the way that this ends, one of the reasons I love it is because like normally the OC didn't do stuff like, oh, will he make it in time type chase stuff? But this one has one where Ryan realizes if he doesn't get to Marissa by New Year's, that it, it might ruin what he has going with her and she'll fall in the arms of this Oliver guy. And so he's like running up hotel stairs, trying to get to this party by the time it runs. And I, I think it's like a really rousing and exciting finale. Like he gets in there with three seconds to go and her face brightens up when she sees him and they kiss. And right. And everybody's counting down, obviously, because it's the, the 10 seconds until midnight. Exactly. That is the, the titular countdown confetti's falling and stuff and and you also get some good seth stuff in here it's not quite as much of a seth episode although you know i've always thought it was my favorite episode just because i really like 
the way that it ends with Ryan running up the stairs and trying to get back to Marissa in time. The the one other dynamic I didn't mention on is it had really rich lives for the adults too, for the parents. And you see that here with Peter Gallagher plays Sandy Cohen, who is Seth's dad. And he ranks up there with my all-time favorite TV dads. Um, he's just like very charming and funny and he's kind of flawed, but he also is like really noble. He always does the right thing. And he's just a great screen presence and character. And then uh, Kelly Rowan plays the mom, Kirsten Cohen. And their thing here is they're wondering if they're in a rut. And so they go to a swingers party. But Sandy, played by Peter Gallagher, manages to kind of cheat his way out of the swingers party and get back with his wife. So it's, it's just a fun episode. There's a big party here thrown by Seth's aunt. So he's got like a young, hot aunt. And that's kind of played for some raunchiness and fun and just all around a good time. Right. I guess it's not out of the question for like if you have a big age gap with siblings that you could have aunts and uncles close to your age or, you know, nieces and nephews close to your age. But the actors here, it was hard to tell how old they were supposed to be like how old the actors actually were and how old the characters they were portraying were supposed to be because then so this hot aunt shows up the younger sister of the mom who the mom already looks pretty young right and then you've got these so-called high schoolers who are probably at least into their 20s and then like marissa goes to the party where oliver is at and she's talking to oliver and oliver holds up like a little aa token he says i'm 11 months sober it's like how old are you <laughs> not yeah. like not only are you drinking in high school but you've been drinking long enough that it became a problem you decided to sober up and then you've been sober for a year so how old are you oliver that's part of the the fun of oliver is you never know what his deal is what's oliver's deal i don't know but I think we're supposed to take away that he had been kind of pretending to be Marissa's age, but he's actually like a few years older than her. But I still don't know many, like, I don't know if he's 21 or 22 year olds who are, you know, have, have been to AA enough to have 11 months sober, you know? Yeah. But you're, you're right. Ben McKenzie, who plays Ryan, he was famously not a teen and doesn't look at all like a teen. He was, I think, 26 when this was filmed, and he could easily have passed for 30, I think. Mm -hmm. I always think Adam Brody should have had a bigger career. The guy who plays Seth, he's been in things. In fact, he's been in plenty of things. He, he's stuck around, but he should be in more stuff. I remember reading stuff at the time, wondering if Adam Brody was the next Tom Hanks. He looks a little bit like Tom Hanks, having like this breakout role in this sort of lightweight show but it seems like he's genuinely charming and talented but he just it never turned into a uh star career he's like maybe c-list celebrity or something you know never made it to the a-list but the a couple of other connections before i move to my my other thing is uh so josh schwartz he's had a pretty prolific career since the oc he has kind of stuck around tv making teen shows mostly not exclusively teen shows like he did chuck did you ever watch chuck brian yeah actually i did see chuck um so he was the creator of chuck 
And he did Gossip Girl, which was basically the OC recreated in New York. So the OC is Orange County um, in, in California. And fun fact, nobody called it the OC. That was something that Josh Schwartz invented for the show. But then it kind of clicked and people now call it the OC. And in the, the pilot, which is a terrific pilot, by the way, the, the bully character, I think his name is Luke, and he's one of the all time best D-bag boyfriend characters. Like when I'm thinking of D-bag boyfriends, I'm thinking of the one in the OC. He, he punches Ryan and he says, welcome to the OC, bitch. And you still see that line referenced a lot. That's like one of the iconic lines of the OC. But yeah, so Josh Schwartz has gone on to make a lot of things, including he made a show that starred Rachel Bilson a few years later, Heart of Dixie. And he made Looking for Alaska. He made the uh, limited series for Hulu, which was an adaptation of a John Green book. And we talked about John Green last week. And spoilers, I'm about to talk about John Green again here. So it all connects together. Evergreen. (laughs) Something like that. Last thing on the OC. I could like riff on the OC for a long time, but I think it's got one of the all time great theme songs. It's uh, called California and it opens with this little piano line. Do 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 And we've got this aerial footage of the wealthy houses on the OC along the beach and Ryan looking out a window as it drives through and he's kind of like soaking in his new world. And then the lyrics are California, here we come right back where we started from. I think it's a great uh, TV theme song and we should, I think we have in the past talk best TV theme songs, Brian. Right. I think that was, that was in the Ur podcast. Yeah. Which maybe we got to find a way to put those on the feed or something, restore them. Maybe. Yeah. But this show to me, it still felt almost like a relic of the late nineties. It like I was feeling some vibes from when we watched Snow Day. It, okay. It gave me feelings of like Tony Hawk Pro Skater and PlayStation One. Right, right. It's right around that time. I mean, you know, it's, it's it, 2003 is just a couple years later than Snow Day from 2000. But yeah, I think what you're saying though about how it feels 90s is how it's like the end of its era. Right. It's like before the Netflix age but the end of the era before the Netflix age. So yeah, fun to talk about the OC and revisit one of the episodes from its uh, its early peak, its early goofiness. <laughs> and uh, this one also dates itself by very much talking about that this is 2003 going into 2004. Right. There's only one day left in 2003, which was a title I considered supporting for this episode. one day left in 2003 yeah yeah and it's shameless about being very 2003 it has a lot of music from 2003 in fact that was another big impact of the oc that was specifically a josh schwartz thing is he liked all these indie pop bands that were rarely on you know mainstream tv and he put a lot of indie bands in the show and so it became like the the oc effect if your band appeared on the oc you would go and sell a bunch of albums. You maybe had sold 20,000, but then you would sell 150,000 in the week following the time that you were on the OC. Where was I going with that? Oh yeah, just that it's extremely 2003 and, and leans into it. And I like it when 
shows and movies date themselves to their time. It's like, I like that Back to the Future is super duper 1985 when it's in 1985 so that when I watch it, I feel like I am there in 1985. Yeah, I think in that case, I like it. Although it makes jokes like Pepsi Perfect not make any sense. Like, I don't know what that is. What do you, what do you, why is this supposed to be funny? <laughs> but that's part of the charm for me. I mean, even Tab, it's like Diet Coke definitely replaced Tab not long after 1985. Yeah. One of the happy endings of the OC is that the actor who plays Seth Cohen, Adam Brody, he ended up marrying the actress Leeton Meester, I think is how you pronounce it, who was in Gossip Girl, who was in kind of the analogous role to Summer from the OC. So it was like someone in the Josh Schwartz universe married someone else in the Josh Schwartz universe. Any other OC thoughts, Brian, before I move on to my my second selection? Well, okay. Just to put it out there. So when this episode starts, uh, Ryan and Marissa have the falling out where Marissa says she loves him and he can't say it back and she storms off. And so now he's faced with the prospect that he's going to have to spend New Year's Eve alone with his dorky brother, Seth. While Seth has two beautiful girls fighting over him, like their whole evening is consumed with the thought that he can't pick between them. And they're like, you know, cat fighting each other. So, I mean, Seth has got his whole other thing going on. This is why I could tell that this was the insert character for the showrunner. But, like, <laughs> you know, Ryan, don't look down on Seth. Right. Yeah, there's a little more to the dynamic than that, but you basically got it. Yeah. All right. So my other thing is an episode of a different podcast, not our podcast. And that is the Anthropocene Reviewed, which was John Green's podcast that he eventually turned into a book. And I don't always like to use superlatives because I feel like that sets up false expectations, but this is my favorite podcast episode of any podcast ever. And the Anthropocene reviewed is my favorite podcast ever. So the name of the episode is Auld Lang sign. And the premise of the Anthropocene reviewed is he would take something quote from the human centered planet and talk about it and usually give it a blend of like his personal relationship with it and like a fun fact background story of that thing that you might not have known. Like the the first episode he did was Diet Dr. Pepper. So he talked about his connection to Diet Dr. Pepper and why it's his favorite drink. But also what's the background of Diet Dr. Pepper? How did it get made? What led us to this existing? And Auld Lang Sign is a double episode in that it's 20 minutes long. Normally the episodes are, well, they are 20 minutes, but he has two 10 minute segments in it. So, you know, we're not talking about very long for a podcast overall, but it still was like epic for what the Anthropocene reviewed was doing. And this came out towards the end of 2019, this episode, um, the Anthropocene reviewed would do one episode a month. And it's basically just essays written and narrated by John Green. This is probably like the last thing that I can think of that was like destination programming for me or whatever you call it, water cooler programming for me. So what I would do is I would download the episode in the morning, put it on on the way to work. So it would come out, I think, on Thursdays and I would listen to it and like half the episodes would make me cry. 
And then I would get in and I would talk to my friend, Eric. Shout out to Eric. Great dude. Listens to the pod. That's not the only reason he's a great dude, but that is one of the reasons he's a great dude. It helps. Yeah. And we would always bond over talking about the Anthropocene Reviewed and if we what we thought of that week's episode. So that was something I would always look forward to and always be very excited about. And part of the premise of the of the Anthropocene Reviewed is that he's kind of satirizing five-star reviews online and how we like review everything online. So he would always give whatever thing that he was talking about a, a rating out of five stars at the end of the episode. Oh, so that never changed? Well, he didn't always give it five stars, but he would give it different ratings. Oh, so, all right. Like anywhere from, I think, one star up to five stars or, or something. And so he would punctuate his essays with like, I give CNN two stars. And it often had a very comic effect because he'd like have this really thoughtful thing and then he'd kind of distill it into this five-star rating and he didn't give out too many five-star ratings. So it was always interesting when he did do one. So, okay, this episode, Auld Lang Syne is again, he's essentially narrating an essay that he wrote about his sort of mentor, um, this writer named Amy Krauss Rosenthal and how he met her when he was an intern at a magazine and she supported his writing career and she was this really interesting and thoughtful person. Uh, meanwhile, he's giving the story of the creation of Auld Lang Syne. So that's the New Year's song. So, Brian, we've talked Auld Lang Syne a little bit. What's the New Year's song that's not Bashana Havaa? <laughs> that's a pretty good point. Which I've been cranking about 10 versions of this past week. It's the, the Western world New Year's song. Yeah. Should old acquaintance be forgot? And I've talked about how I really love Auld Lang Syne. And, you know, this episode, Auld Lang Syne of the Anthropocene Reviewed, debuted in 2019. So before we started the podcast in 2020. And this definitely increased my appreciation of the song, although I already really liked it. Like, because of its usage in great movie scenes, most especially... It's a Wonderful Life. The ending of It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe my favorite ending to any movie. Certainly up there. Very emotional. I watched it this past week. Made me cry again. Here's to my brother, Harry, the richest man in town, or whatever it is. Is it is it Harry now? No, I'm second guessing myself. Harry says it to George. George. To my brother, George, the richest man in town. Man, how many times have you seen this movie? Dan? I'm so bad with names, dude. You know that. <laughs> I've seen it twice. Yeah. George Bailey, right, is the protagonist. That's right, yeah, George Bailey. One other thing that kind of complicates my relationship with Auld Lang Syne is that the college I went to, UVA, has Auld Lang Syne, a variation of Auld Lang Syne, that is, um, as its unofficial school song. And that is called The Good Old Song. It's not officially a fight song or officially an alma mater, but it's like the song that everyone at UVA knows, even more so than any fight song or alma mater. It goes, the good old song of Wahoo Wah, which is like a chant they do at UVA, will sing it over and over. And I always thought it was a little bit stupid that we just took Auld Lang Syne and put our own words over it. So that kind of embittered me towards the song a little bit, but also I had some sentiment towards it because it was my college. 
I feel some of that as well because the William and Mary College song is just a recycling of the Cornell College song, which has actually been used by many, many other colleges. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And I only learned it was the Cornell song because Andy Bernard sings it on The Office. But I subsequently looked it up and it's the song of like a hundred colleges. So That's pretty funny. Not very special. So you thought it was your own thing. Exactly. But then it, it was actually like used by everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of funny. So in this podcast episode, uh, which I highly recommend, he basically eventually ties Amy Krauss Rosenthal, um, who died of cancer, with Auld Lang Syne in that when she would run events, she would have people at events recreate something from World War One, which is that British soldiers would sing, we're here because we're here because we're here because we're here to the tune of Auld Lang Syne, like about the pointlessness of war. Like, why are we in trenches shooting other young men out there? And he, he brings in some, uh, some historical anecdotes like this really bizarre and touching story that I had actually never heard before this of a time when soldiers on opposite sides agreed to pause it. I think it was for Christmas and have a snowball fight and, uh, like a holiday celebration together. Just like everybody agreed not to shoot each other for a while. Did, did this click with you at all, Brian? Was this interesting to you? Yeah, definitely. So a couple things about this. This anecdote is the 1914 Christmas truce, the first year of World War I. And so, yeah, basically the Germans had like a Christmas tree on their side and they like hoisted it up over the edge of the trench. And they were like, because again, even back then, a lot of Germans spoke English. They're like, hey, it's Christmas, you know, and it started like both sides like sang Christmas carols and they just kind of eventually got the vibe that they weren't going to kill each other. And so then brave, brave guys just started climbing over the edge of the trench and they met out in no man's land. And at least in some places, it's said that they played soccer and stuff and, you know, exchanged cigarettes and were convivial found that maybe they had more in common among the fighting men than they had with their officers and the, you know, the political elite running the countries and they they fraternized. Right. And this has been held up ever since as an example of kind of enduring humanity in the worst situation. But then, you know, 1915, 1916, 1970, they, those subsequent years of the war some of that goodwill had worn away as the body count racked up, but uh, it is definitely an interesting historical oddity. And I know, Dan, you're not the biggest fan of like biopic type movies, but there is a good movie about the Christmas truce. It's called Joyeux Noël. Oh, interesting. A French film from 2005 that I would recommend. So I, I first learned about this incident from, I think it was a nostalgic critic video in like 2010 about joy you noel okay uh but yeah anytime that a podcast or a re internet reviewer can teach me about something i'm on board yeah and that's one of the things i liked about the anthropocene reviewed is it would it wasn't just thoughtful reflections although it was a lot of that it was also 
like some real educational content. Right. And then you can go and read more about the thing. Exactly. Because it, it tends to be pretty short, you know, only 10 minutes of a podcast episode. And he's like mixing in his own thoughts with background on, on what he's talking about. But um, this episode of the Anthropocene Reviewed, it, it ends with him basically talking about how he now sees the refrain, we're here because we're here, as something sort of optimistic and hopeful and just kind of like, despite its circular, reflexive nature of the way it's constructed. And, and what do they call that in rhetoric? I think it's a tautology. I think it's like a self-evident statement. That's true. I guess it is a tautology because a tautology is like a thing that uses itself to prove itself, basically. So we're here because we're here. I guess that is. Yeah. And he kind of expands out his appreciation of the impact that Amy Krauss Rosenthal had on his life to all the people who have impacted him. And the episode ends. I almost don't want to spoil it because I want everyone to go and listen to it. But the episode ends with him basically encouraging whoever is listening to sing a refrain of we're here because we're here with him as we think about the own people who impacted our lives. And I've listened to this podcast episode three times now. And like every single time I'm bawling, like I had to pull over the first time I was listening to it. Cause like I couldn't drive safely. <laughs> I've always tried to sing along, but I'm usually, I'm too choked up as I do it. I don't know why this in particular, like really gets to me, but man, does it get to me? So it's, it's a really touching, extremely well-written, thoughtful, funny from moment to moment, little piece of writing that you can listen to as a podcast that, that I just adore. Mm -hmm. And then he gives it five stars. Yeah. He gives all blank sign five stars. That's the punchline after he does all of that. So I have three, things I want to bring into the conversation sure. that are all related to this. So first, he uses the phrase, people who have loved us into being, or something very, very similar, if not word for word. And that's who you think back on on New Year's. Either it's the people who you actually are spending time with, or you reflect further back to the people who aren't here any longer. And this same phrase was used by Mr. Rogers, in a speech that he made when he accepted a Lifetime Achievement Emmy Award in 1997. So pretty close to the end of his own life. And he gets up there and, you know, he, he thanks the people who gave him the award. But then he also pulls out his wristwatch or, or holds it up. And he says, now I want you to take along with me a minute of silence to think about the people who have loved us into being. And that for me... No matter how many times I watch it, that always makes me cry. And of course, everybody in the whole audience is crying. Right. But uh, another thing it makes me think of this podcast episode, and I, I've only listened to one other episode that you sent my way, which is about the Hall of Presidents at Disney World, because John Green grew up in Orlando, Florida, which was the setting of uh, Paper Towns, which was the John Green adaptation we previously covered. Anyway, the, the presentation, it reminds me of, did you ever read any of the books by Robert Fulgham? No. He's the guy who wrote All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Oh, it's possible I read that. 
like 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, if you haven't read the whole book, you've probably read just that essay. Mm -hmm. But he has got like a half dozen collections of little essays like that. And it's always just concise, heart-tugging stuff. Like uh, on the less charitable side, you could read it as emotionally manipulative. But it's very sentimental. And it'll almost always make you cry a little bit. For sure. And I have always admired the craft of that, at the very least. Like, I think it's it makes for good reading. It's something that you want to turn to every once in a while. Yeah, not every day, but every once in a while. And I think the fact that this one is definitely a heart-tugging episode of The Anthropocene Reviewed on multiple layers is also not entirely representative of what the podcast does. I mean, it's often just being funny or just being informative. I mean, it always has an element of personal reflection and connection with this terrific writing by John Green. But I think the fact that this was one of the episodes that pulled out the big guns and there were only a couple of ones that did in terms of like uh, sentimentality is part of what made it so effective. Like if he did this every week, I'm not sure one particular instance (laughs) of it would stand out quite so much. Gotcha. Well, one other thing this had me thinking of when he sang the version where it's we're here because we're here it reminded me that my big new year's tradition is i'll always put on the twilight zone marathon that the sci-fi channel does and has done ever since like the 80s whenever the sci-fi channel started being a thing on cable uh, they do 48 hours of twilight zone or a couple years ago it was the 20th anniversary or maybe it was the 25th anniversary but anyway they showed every single episode and that went like four whole days and i was like what more than just two days wow anyhow you know they show all this dystopian sci-fi and one episode is called five characters in search of an exit and it's five random people wake up in a room almost like saw style and they can't figure out how to get out of the room and they don't know how they got there. And one of the characters starts singing Auld Lang Syne, we're here because we're here because we're here. Oh, man. And so it's it's perfect because it, it's the New Year's marathon, but also it's reflecting on like being trapped. Interesting. Yeah. He often brings in pop culture references. He doesn't always hit all of them, but. I wonder if he had seen that before he wrote this. So those were some of the things running through my mind. I'm I'm glad we got to discuss this one because I thought it was quite good as well. So, Dan, are we ready to rate these things? Sure. Let's do it. All right. So, you know, usually we've got like a dedicated host and a, a guest who will chime in first. And so, I don't know, we've kind of round-robined this one, so who should go first with the ratings? Oh, how about for the first two, I'll go first, and then for the second two, you go first. Yeah, that sounds like it can work. All right, so Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie or the TV episode or the podcast or the Sesame Street special a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from Very Not Good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Tour de Good, which is an 8 out of 8. So, I guess we will do Sesame Street Stays Up Late, a.k.a. Sesame Street Celebrates Around the World, from 1993 as the first one. And I will answer, is this good? So, um, I thought this was pretty fun. It didn't click quite as much for me as the first two. 
when I say the first two, I mean the ones we watched the recent episode where we talked about Sesame Street. And I liked that we got to get different glimpses of different Sesame Streets. But to me, that was almost more like I think it's good that we're doing it as opposed to I personally really got a lot of enrichment out of it, like more fascinating than uh, really compelling, I guess. I did like some of the sum plots and some of the songs. I'm going to give this one a good ish, a four, which is kind of my rating that I give things that I, I like that they exist. And I think it's good that they exist. But, you know, wasn't exactly something that I personally got a ton of enjoyment out of. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. I'm going to rate it a little bit higher. Not as high as Elmo Saves Christmas, because, as I said, I love the unexpectedly dark apocalyptic version of Sesame Street that we see in that one. We compared it to Pottersville, but I quite like this New Year's special. I think it does a good job of actually being fairly educational. It talks about time zones and things, how it can be day in one part of the world while it's still night in the other part. And it really gets you thinking about how this is a celebration of the passage of time. And, you know, the positive aspects of that where you can evaluate and make plans for how you're going to do better and be better in the year ahead, but also some melancholy because you're, you're being more introspective than normal about each passing day. So I give this one a six, a very good. I think it's cool that we see kind of the global reach at maybe the, like the, the greatest expanse of the Sesame Street empire, because a lot of these shows didn't last much beyond this. And yeah, so very good for me. I turned to it as a favored New Year's special. So that brings us to Dinner for One. So it is now my turn to answer whether Dinner for One is good. And I will say that it is good. I'm going to give this one a five out of eight. It's kind of hard to rate because it's it's just a little sketch, but I think it's pretty funny and I think it's got good performances, the dude act, acting drunker and drunker. And I think the undercurrent is there just enough to give it some oomph of, hey, we're pretending to be dead people. I kind of wish it went even a little bit darker. Uh, I don't know if it could be quite so funny if it did, but like if it somehow leaned into it even a little bit more, I think I would have liked it even more. And it's a little silly. But I still had a good time watching it, and I was glad that I watched it. And I think it's kind of funny that it's became this international sensation, even though not so many people in the English-speaking world regularly watch it. Yeah, I love that it's a phenomenon, and yet no one can really explain why. <laughs> right. It's just like, this is the thing that we do, is we watch <laughs> a 15-minute short film in a language that we don't really speak. <laughs> yeah, so I'm right there with you, Dan. I give this one a five. It's a very quirky novelty, but it is genuinely well staged. Wikipedia calls it a two-hander. You know, it's two actors playing off of each other. And I would like to know more about the world beyond what we see, uh, specifically time-wise. I want to know more about what happened to Pomeroy and Winterbottom and Von Schneider and how long exactly they've been gone. I almost like that we don't know how they went, that there's not a story around it. It's just like these empty chairs. There's, But I, I can see what you're saying, that like maybe if they tied that in some way into the to the jokes, like something about, oh, this guy had a heart attack 
better cut back on eating the cheese or, or something like that, mm-hmm. you know? And I find it kind of interesting that, like, you know, the first three quarters of it, you think that Sophie has lost her marbles. That, oh, James is humoring her doing this Alzheimer's charade. And yet then at the end, it seems like maybe she knows a little more than she cottons on. And that actually it's all just a pretense to have butler sex. (laughs) Something like that, yeah. She's the one pulling the strings there. Right, the puppet master. Then the third piece of media we considered was the OC episode, 14th episode of season one, The Countdown. And so, again, this show is completely new to me, so I don't know the whole story. Maybe I need to watch some more. Um, I'm right on the border of a three and a four. I did find it very soapy, and it was clear that, like, Seth was a stand-in for... I mean, Seth Cohen, Josh Schwartz. It's like, okay, so it's a monosyllable Jewish guy. I, I think in the little bit that I read, he did talk about that it was, like, his experience of being... A well-to-do person who yet still doesn't feel completely plugged in to the community. So, yeah, I I feel like I can't judge the show as a whole. But, like, these these two guys, these Drake and Josh dudes, have got multiple beautiful women fighting over them. So it's... I I sense a lot of wish fulfillment, which isn't always the worst thing. I mean, it's, it's beautiful people in a beautiful place is the sense that I get from this little toe dip into the OC. Uh, I did think the young parents were hip. I would watch more of it. I think I'm ultimately going to settle on a high three. Not not good. All right. So where are you at on the countdown, Dan? Yeah, so this is very clearly much more up my alley. I do think it, it might land a little bit more or seem like less out of the blue how the way all the, the relationship that all these characters have. Certainly wish fulfillment is part of it, but um, if you were to watch it from the start, you might have a little bit more connection to the characters. I, I agree. It's it's hard to dive in to the middle of a, a random TV series, especially one that's very much in the teen soap genre. You know, it's it's pretty shameless about that. So, And as you said, I'm sure things, the status quo changes from episode to episode. So you might get something different four episodes from now than you got here. Absolutely, yeah. So I really like this. I do think the OC is something that works more as like kind of a time capsule and a spirit rather than a specific exemplary piece of writing or craft or anything like that. Like it's kind of all about the sum of its parts rather than any individual part. So rating a single episode is is going to be tough. That said, I really like this one. It still makes me smile quite a bit. Uh, I'm quite sentimental towards it because I I had a really good time watching the show back in the day. I'm going to give it a low six out of eight. And that is very good. Just something that is uh, right up my alley and brings me brings me a very big smile. Nice. And I like the ending. I like it a lot when he's running up the hotel stairs and he he gets the New Year's kiss with the confetti swirling around. And yeah, cock blocks Oliver at the very last second. Yeah. Classic (laughs) Oliver. (laughs) And the last thing we talked about was the Auld Lang Syne episode from 2019 of the Anthropocene Reviewed podcast. I give this one an eight, Dan. Eight stars. Wow. I thought this was superbly 
well executed. All the threads and how they tied together at the end of the 20 minute piece was very well done. I like John Green. I like hearing him talk. I've said before, and this is a reference that people aren't going to appreciate, but he has like a lot of the same energy and speaking style of my friend Zach Mott, which just gives me the sense that if I spoke to John Green, I think we would get along. And I'm sure a lot of people get that feeling. He just seems like a very personable person and smart and clever and funny and kind. Definitely. I talked a little bit about him in our recent episode about Let It Snow, and I talked more about him in our episode back in when we talked about Paper Towns. He's one of the few people where, like, if it turned out that he had this dark secret in life that I would genuinely be heartbroken. Like, in general, I don't put my celebrities on a pedestal, but John Green is one of the few famous people who I actually look up to, the way that he thinks about things and engages with the world and the positive impact he has on the world. But just still, like you said, being really likable and smart. And here's one for you to noodle on, Brian. I think he reminds me of our friend Colton. I don't know how well you actually know Colton, but okay, some of the way that he talks and the fact that he's just really smart and can always bring in a good gag the way that Colton can makes me think of Colton, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think like our friend circle, if you boiled it into some kind of amalgam, you might have a John Green type character. But I, too, am going to give this a tour to good, an eight out of eight. Um, like I said, this one really gets me. I think it is a terrific piece of writing, the way that it explores these parallels of the Auld Lang Syne song and ties it back into his relationship with Amy Krauss Rosenthal. And then the ending just breaks me down. And um, terrific, terrific podcast episode, podcast and just one of my favorite things. It would have been pretty high up on Dan's top 100 everything, an exercise I did where I ranked all of my favorite things across any media. Except you still haven't written the top three yet. No, I've written, I have written three and two, but I haven't written number one. Oh, okay. Uh, funny you should mention that. I, out of the blue, got a, got a question about that. Are you ever going to write number one? Someone found me on Letterboxd, left a comment on one of my reviews. Are you ever going to finish Dan's top 100 everything? It's, it's nobody I know. They don't follow me on any social media or anything like that. They But they found me and left that comment, which I thought was pretty funny. They found me. I don't know how, but they found me. <laughs> so yeah, that's an, a hell of an eight, as I've said before. Easy tour to good for me. So this was fun, Brian. Yes, Dan, but we're not done yet. And so, Dan, I have a surprise review for you. Okay. Is I want to put a rating on the year 2022. The year? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Was 2022 good? I can do that. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, once we say that, maybe we give an idea of what our resolutions for the year ahead are. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'm happy to do that. All right. Would you be willing to go first? Sure. So is 2022 good on the on our eight point scale? So um, 2022 for me was an exceptionally good year. I'm going to give 2022 a seven out of eight. A lot of really big things in my life. The biggest being I moved to a new house, sold my old house, bought a new house. This is where I'm going to live the next couple decades of my life. I gave up drinking 
I don't know if it's forever, but at least for now I have, and I feel a lot better since I've done that, uh, sleeping better, have a little bit more energy. Um, I started doing my movie review site, which was really meaningful to me. And I've kept up with the podcast, which has also been a big part of my life. Met more people in my new neighborhood, feeling connected with my neighborhood. My five-year-old started kindergarten. She's loving it. Uh, we're really liking the school. Really feels like I'm entering a new phase of my life. Also, I did Thanksgiving, where I binged a bunch of Tom Hanks movies. So it can't really be a bad year when you have Thanksgiving in there. And I celebrated my 10-year wedding anniversary, which was pretty exciting. So all around, uh, a really good year for me. Uh, an excellent one. And I look forward to what 2023 may bring. What about you, Brian? Well, that's good to hear. Man, I'm trying to decide if I should have gone first or, or I'm just going now. As you will. But this is how the die was cast. So I am going to give it a three out of eight, a not, not good. Definitely not as good as 2021, but it is saved by the fact that I started this graduate program, which I've really been enjoying and I've been meeting, you know, I feel like I'm with my kind of people for the first time in a while and have really enjoyed some of the contacts I've made there. And I'm really, you know, going forward with the goal of seizing opportunities. And I think I've done some of that already um, through a teacher's recommendation. I've been hired as a producer uh, with this group that works for the State Department, and they arrange tours for foreign journalists to report on topics in America. Oh, congrats. So that's on the horizon, something that should bear some fruit in 2023, like in the spring. That's cool. And um, also through that same teacher, I have been selected to get trained by the Avid company, which is a, an editing platform that's professionally used. Uh, so then I will have a certification to be an Avid teacher. And so that's gonna have the dual benefit of like, I'm gonna learn the software, which is an industry standard. And then I'm also gonna be able to teach the software. So like, I'll be able to, you know, get money two ways that, that way. That's awesome. Um, so that's going to be very good. In other ways, it's been a lot of the, the same old, same old this year. So I, I really am trying to make the most of these new opportunities. And and that's going to be a part of my 2023 resolutions. Been very grateful, as always, that we've kept the podcast going. It's a highlight of the week. Um, so good on you for continuing to put them out editing-wise. Yeah. I've enjoyed talking to people on the Discord, so that's pretty cool that people have been listening. And Brian, of course, right back at you. I, I have really gotten a lot out of doing this, so thanks to you for for always being there week in, week out, and thanks to listeners. We reached more years than ever this past year, and I hope we continue to, because and even if we don't, I like making this, so it's fun. Cheers. I was going to pull out an old Lang Syne quote. I'll, I'll read this, this passage here. We too have paddled in the stream from morning sun till night. The seas between us lord and swell since the days of Auld Lang Syne. So I don't know if there's quite that much a gap between us, Brian, but I feel like we together have paddled in the stream from morning sun till night this past year in different ways. Yes, I agree. But I'm glad to be paddling with you, I guess. Yeah metaphorically. 
We could go uh, canoeing sometime and do some literal paddling. Born back ceaselessly into the stream. <laughs> so you also wanted to talk resolutions, Brian. Yes. So resolutions. I, for one, am going to pursue my fitness goals with a little more gusto. I was really good about working out every day, 2020, 2021, and I've backslid a little bit this past year because it didn't quite bear the fruit I was hoping for, but I am going to pick that drive back up again. That's always good. That's actually related to mine is um, I want to maintain some of the positive changes I've made for my health and, and to keep working on them. Uh, fitness has always been one that I've struggled with. I mean, I, I eat pretty well and I sleep pretty well. And now that I've cut out drinking, I think those have been improved a little bit too, but getting in more regular exercise and figuring out how to make that a part of my life when I'm so busy is a, a new year's resolution of mine. Um, I also want to, of course, keep the podcast going and try to write a little bit every day, whether it's a review or something else, write a little bit every day that I can. And lastly, I want to apply to some film critic societies and see if I can join any film critic societies. That's my next goal on my, my path. Interesting. What would that allow you to do? It would get me access to pre-release screeners potentially, and then uh, voting in end of year award selections for that society. So not for any like real awards, but for that society. And then to connect with other film critics and movie lovers. Oh, wow. You'll have to let me know if you can pull that off. Well, I will do. It's, I don't know if it'll happen this year, but it's something that I'm going to work towards. All right. Well, we've got our work cut out for us, but I think we can do it. And now, Dan, I'm looking at the clock and it's getting on towards midnight. So if you'll count down with me, yeah, I want to allow the listeners to ring in the new year. All right. Okay. Let's do so it. here it goes. 10, Ten nine, nine, eight, seven, seven six, six, five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year! 2023! Yeah. yeah, something I noticed is that all the films, except for the podcast episode, everything we watched this week came out in a year ending in a three. Huh. So 2023, Dan, is the 20th anniversary of the first season of The O.C. It's the 30th anniversary of Sesame Street Celebrates Around the World. And it's the 60th anniversary of Dinner for One. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Time flies. Indeed. Tempest Fugit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe some things will be different, but in some ways it'll be the same procedure as every year, Brian. Yeah. We're here because we're here. We may throw the calendar away, but we are going to continue to persist. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for joining us in a brand new year. We hope you tell your friends, talk us up, join the Discord. And at the very least, thanks for joining us here this time. So, Brian, next week, what I'm going to have us do is watch the film Used Cars. I think it's from 1983. Or excuse me, it's 1980. Have you seen Used Cars, Brian? No, I haven't even heard of this one. Can you give us any of the premise? Yeah, so here's what I'll tell you about it. One of Robert Zemeckis' first films, and 
I don't know much about it, but what I do know about it is one thing you'll recall, it's been a while, but from earlier in our show's run, two times I've asked my friend Hunter for movie recommendations. And both times I think you've given them a seven out of eight. So that was 12 Monkeys. That was Repo Man. And now this is the third movie he's recommended for us is Used Cars. Uh, he recommended one other one that we'll see if we get to at some point that I have I have in the can. But this was one of his recommendations. So uh, in addition, Brian, if you're if you're up for it and you're able to find time this week, I'd like to briefly talk through our top five Robert Zemeckis films, because I know he's a director you have a lot of fondness for. Oh, yeah. He he probably has five on my top hundred. I got to check. Yeah, but you're right. I was trying to think. And I mean, we could almost do if we did bottom one, it would probably have uh, what Pinocchio 2022. Oh, God, I'll probably bring that up next week. <laughs> um, well, I'm looking forward to it. I generally jive with Hunter's picks. So that should be fun. So, yeah, looking forward. All right. So, Brian, I'll see you next week. And listeners, I'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Happy New Year.